Today on Sagittarian Matters, it's Capricorn Matters with advice on revenge, dating, asking for things, working for free, having a life, a new literary press, two new supportive class structures, and more with very special guest, Beth Pickens. Stay tuned. Capricorn Matters. Beth Pickens, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. I'm sorry. Welcome back to Capricorn Matters. Nicole, I couldn't be happier to be here. It's been ages. And here on the, not the eve, what's the opposite of the eve of the Capricorn full moon? It's, we're here on the Capricorn full, it's the day of the Capricorn full moon, is it not? Yeah, it was four something a.m. on Pacific, the Pacific coast. I can feel my full power, like, and like structural money things have been happening. Really? Already? Yes. Yes. Incredible. All right, Beth, I have some structural money questions for you. But first, in an unprecedented move, we have an advice caller live in the Sagittarius Matter Social Distancing Studio to ask us their question. Let's find out who it is. Let's find out who it is. Caller. Welcome to Capricorn Matters. Thank you so much for having me on this holiday. I'm happy to be here. Would you guys want to hear my problem? We would love to hear your problem. Okay. I am sort of newly single. I'm coming out of a long-term relationship that was also a long-distance relationship. It was a monogamous relationship. It was very serious, but our lives were not going in the same direction. So we decided as adults, that it makes sense to sort of just separate in a loving way and give each other space to sort of, you know, move our lives in the direction that make more sense romantically, individually. Um, That was not successful. And we continue to sleep with each other and see each other pretty frequently and just kind of do a very like sort of early aughts, like sort of 90s kind of disaster type format for a relationship structure. Um, I think there's been like a lot of books since then to like avoid this, but um, so we are spending time together, but we have tweaked a few things. Like we're sort of not checking in on a daily basis. We make plans when we are going to talk. We don't ask each other, what'd you do yesterday? What are you doing this weekend? We sort of give each other more space to start forming our own lives outside of each other. So that being said, I am now dating and I'm dating casually because I don't want to go from serious relationship to serious relationship. I want to know, what do you guys think is the most responsible, ethical, and appropriate way to present my situation uh, to new dating kind of uh, people I would be now dating casually. I I typically start my relationships with these people as saying, I'm available for casual dating only. You know, I mind my business, you mind your business. But that's all great on paper. But once you start kind of getting to know people, it starts to feel like you sort of have a secret. Um, So I'm just wondering, how would you guys approach this? What as, as, you know, adult, evolved human beings, would you reasonably expect another person that you are dating casually to, you know, tell you about what they're doing in their personal life. Good question. Beth, do you have any follow-up questions? Um, I just want to say first, because we don't have any um, 
adults, like sane recovered adults here, Nicole and I are going to do our best. And yeah. thank you so much for sharing. Um, I would like first to say, I love the resurgence of the word casual for dating and sex. It's so eighties. It makes me feel like I'm at a video store. I'm like nine years old. And there's like a video with a, um, there was some movie probably like R rated that I never saw, but thought about renting. And I think it was called casual sex with a question mark after it. And so now you caller, because I can see you, you are in that VHS box in my mind forever. So thank you. Um, I do have a clarifying question. Can you tell us how do you understand casual? I know. Well, casual, I guess I think of as I don't speak to people every day. I don't ask them about their own dating life and their own sexual landscape. I try to keep it, our hangouts in the present moment. Like, what are we doing tonight? And we talk about what's happening and we keep it light. Like, we're not emotionally depending on each other. I'm not making a plan to definitely see them another time every time we hang out. And I try and keep it so that I don't see anyone more than twice to three times a month. Oh, wow, a month? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess I would... The first thing I would say is to talk about the casual thing and make sure you know with yourself what your kind of boundaries are around that. Like, what are your flags for, ooh, this person is trying to steer this in another direction or, ooh, this feels like it has the potential to go in a more serious direction. Because that's the thing that's always what's hard when I've been, when I've tried to be casual before. I know, but you know how sometimes, and that's people's, people are responsible for themselves, obviously, but sometimes I think people can say one thing and maybe even not be honest with them. You're saying I need to police behavior rather than listen to what people are saying. Both. I think, but like with yourself to be like, now I know when I need to start going for the doorknob because it seems like they're not, not actually into this being as casual as my aim was. I appreciate that. But a part of me wants to just be responsible for myself. Like I want other people to do, take care of themselves. I want to keep my side of the street clean. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, okay. So I think, first of all, you're right on with like, you just have to keep the focus on yourself and dating in all parts of life, but definitely in this situation too. And I think it's really just a question of kind of what Nicole was saying, like you returning to yourself over and over and over again about like, what is, what's the limitation of this person and this person? How am I feeling? Am I getting any kind of feelings? Is this going relationship? Because Caller, I almost said your name, but then I called you caller. One thing that I think is really true is people want to want to be casual, just like they want to want to go to the gym or they want to want to write a book. Like we want to want to be these people. And maybe we're not always honest with where we are right now. And I think there can be a lot of pressure on both sides to be like heavily presenting as seeking monogamy or heavily presenting as not seeking monogamy. And and, and it can be difficult for a person just be understanding like, what, what do I want right now in 2023? And, and how do I actually get that? It's hard. Even for us queer people who have so many books and dietary restrictions that are about these very specific topics. So I think the thing for you to do with the other person honestly is nothing but be very clear about what do you mean by casual, not just in your words, but in your behavior. And to keep noticing with yourself as you're dating, is anything feeling like, is there any call coming from inside the house where you're like, oh, actually I'm feeling a little bit more relationshipy with this person, or I'm starting to have like a different feeling, or I think this could go somewhere because then you're going to be sent on a series of transformations internally. And I think when you observe that in another person, just like an honest check-in right away. 
just honest, not being hyper vigilant with them, but just noticing if your hackles get up, trusting your intuition, like you are a practice seasoned homosexual. I happen to know you have experience with relationships. You have experience with the queer landscape of dating and sex. So I think it's really important to just keep checking in with yourself um, because the fact that you want to keep your side of the street clean and you want to detach from the other people just tells me you're bringing and you want to bring a lot of integrity to the situation. And the situation involves other humans, so it will be complicated. And and on to the the X thing, I don't think it's anyone's business. I mean, if you're not telling them a list of who you're having sex with in the first place, it doesn't matter you're having sex with your ex. If things were going to a relationship space and then it seemed like they were more like, oh, for safety reasons or emotional reasons or whatever, I just would like to know your roster, your dance card, then you could include that then and they could make their own decision. But I don't think you need to lead with that. I agree with Nicole about this. I don't think who who else you're sleeping with, unless that's a conversation that you were very intentionally having with another person, it, you don't need to have that. And it sounds like that's a thing you're specifically not trying to have. And what's going on with you and your ex right now? It yeah, it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't have to belong in any of these other connections right now. That was my that was my thinking, and my therapist was also kind of you know at first I was saying to people I'm dating my ex or I'm Polly now, and my my therapist was like don't even say that just tell people you spend time with your ex when you see them, and that's the end the beginning and the middle. But my friend tried to call me out recently and said because the thing with my ex is emotional that it doesn't actually neatly fit into the I'm sleeping with other people category. It's sort of you know like you're one of many she kind of flagged that that situation maybe carries a different weight and that it might be kind of worth mentioning to people who might be spending time with me. So you guys disagree. I I disagree. I'm sure your friend, if your friend was here, I I would probably, I'm very persuasive. I could probably hear them and get on board for something. But again, I think like what you're seeking right now with other people that kind of, if you're having a DTR talk, defining the relationship talk to the point where you're talking about, so like, are we non-monogamous? Like, who are you having? Like, you're already escalating right there. So the the rules are already changing. And if it's, if you're sticking to kind of the boundaries and limitations that you're describing, then um, that relationship to your ex that you have right now, it's just not on the table. It's just not on the table for conversation. Yeah. It would be a different thing if you were trying to move on and you were looking for like your next primary partner as a poly poly pod person. But um, as it stands, it doesn't feel like information that anyone needs to know at this moment. Yeah. It sounds like everybody would be too early days. Like there may be one or more that eventually you have to have a conversation with because something for you has changed. But if somebody else wants to escalate it and you're not on the same page, like you don't then owe them that information. This is like, I remember, um, I won't say who, but we have a good friend who became pregnant and wrote a whole book about getting pregnant. And I remember early on, <laughs> I think she wrote about this in the book, so I don't need to use a pseudonym. Um, but I remember her asking me while she was trying to get pregnant and she was dating people. She's like, do I need to tell people I want to have a baby? I was like, you don't have to, you don't owe anybody that information right away. Like the first few dates with somebody, hopefully you're just banging your brains out, but also like, you're just getting to know someone. You don't even know if you want to see them again. If you both are, if that's the vibe, great, go for it. But like, you you don't owe somebody. If you want to give that, you can, but you don't owe them that. No. I asked that same person asked me that same question when they were dating and I told them they should tell somebody on the second date. So (laughs) (laughs) we all three probably had a different formula. 
I think I said at least three to five dates because you want to see if you actually like the person before you have to process with them about your life goals. I mean, you could suss out their rough landscape. Like if on the first date, they're like, God, I never want children. Ew. Then you're like, okay, that's good information for me to have. I'm not actually going to have this pregnancy talk with them because we're not going on another date. You know, um, caller, thank you so much for your questions. This, I mean, do I, what do I owe? Like, this was incredible. This I, I worth its weight in gold. You guys are very clever. Thank you so much for the support. I actually feel like I really did get some clarity. So I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. We'll our, be sending you an invoice. Our first satisfied customer, Nicole. I'm so <laughs> grateful. Thank you Thank so much you. for being our first live satisfied customer. Thanks for asking. Have a good pod, you guys. Bye. Bye. Wow, Beth. I really feel like we helped. I have a one more romantic question. I know you're usually our businessman, but hey, I, I do a- the I do the business of romance too, you know? We've got the business of romance today. Dear Capricorn Matters, I just broke up with somebody who I feel was a covert narcissist. I've been researching this and that's what it seems like to me. And I feel completely discarded. I'm still in the healing phase, but I really have an impulse to include information. I really having an impulse to fictionalize this and write about it. I'm a writer. Um, When is it too soon to start writing about a relationship? I really feel an urge to let other people know about these covert narcissists. Signed, Curious and Cascadia. Wow. I'm sorry, Curious. It sounds like you're in a lot of pain. It sounds like the breakup was very hurtful and who this person was and probably how they handled the breakup was really hurtful. And so one thing I just want to say is you're in a lot of pain and you don't have to make giant decisions while you're in a lot of pain. It's really helpful when we're going through giant swaths of grief because of loss, whether that's death or breakups or loss of jobs or homes. It's really good to give ourselves some time before we make really big decisions if possible. And in this case, I want to say one thing. First of all, you as an artist, you as a writer, you don't have to wait to write about anything. Like immediately write, just write all the time. Because there's a difference between writing the stuff and putting it out into the world. And, and, and depending on the nature of your writing, that might be a very quick turnaround or it might be a lengthier turnaround. But I would say for all writers, you get to write about whatever you want. It's just like, and you have to, you just have to write about whatever you want to write about and whatever you need to write about. And what you decide to do with it and where and when is a different question. So like kind of for your writing, your art making as something that is going to help facilitate the grief and help you get clarity and help you keep the focus on yourself and how you're doing, that's vital. So be writing. Now, a second question is, what, if anything, do you do with the writing? And if you're the kind of person who would be immediately like putting it on social media or in a newsletter, a Substack, or it goes on your website right away versus making something that gets published in the next six to, you know, 34 months, then maybe what I would ask you to do is just pause to first just use the writing as a mechanism for to promote and facilitate you moving through the grief and getting perspective and clarity about what just happened so that you can kind of accumulate a bunch of material to sort through later when the you who has some wisdom, is not in so much pain, isn't feeling reactive, can make a considered decision about what you want to do with that material 
right? So um, you don't have to put it out into the world. It's not to say that you won't, but you don't have to do that right now, but you do need to write right now. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I just want to speak to the kind of like, any kind of sense of like wanting revenge, wanting revenge on a diagnosis. I just, I think it's important to be able to like, think about the hard parts of the relationship and stand with yourself without necessarily making it that you are like standing against this person. Like, can you companion yourself through the hard memories and through this hard moment without picking up a weapon? You know, I still want you to write. I still want you to do your thing. But like, I just, I guess I just, I'm giving some unsolicited, just like, you know, on your healing journey, as much as you can keep the focus on yourself and like companion yourself through it and be really gentle with yourself. And like, maybe yourself is having like, you know, the stages of grief, anger. Cool. But I, you know, I don't think that that revenge urge needs to like hit the light of day, in a, you know, in a way where you're like, I have a platform. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I think restraint of pen and tongue is really important when we're angry and when we're grieving, um, especially after a breakup. And so I'm a big fan of like that, that anger, the only way through the anger, the only way the other side of the anger is through it. And so it might be useful to express it in a lot of different ways in your own writing. And also I'm a big fan of the um, sort of unsent emails, unsent texts, or sending the things you want to say to your ex to like your best friend, but writing to the ex, like these are the following reasons why I hate you or whatever, like really express it all, but don't send it to them because you don't want to do anything now that you in six or 12 or 18 months has to like clean up. Yeah. But it still has to be expressed and you deserve to express it. So we can think about what are the containers that allow you to go through the full range of emotions because that's what you need and deserve as a person who's hurting. And don't create a situation for your future self that um, that, that person has to clean up at all because they won't want to do that. They'll be moving on. They'll be feeling better. They'll be dating and considering other things in their life. And, and they won't want to have to deal with what might have spilled out in anger. And anger is completely normal and appropriate. And it can be sort of channeled in ways that are really supportive, like your friends. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Wonderful advice, Beth Pickens. Oh, I aim to please here on this Capricorn full moon. Today's episode is brought to you by Whitney Gecker, Jamie Rabin, Kale McHurst, and Zella Minor House. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular, producer Chris Sutton, please send $5 or $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or, this just in, he's got a Venmo, Hell Books. That's H-E, double hockey sticks, books. Thank you for your support. And we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Pano looks forward to it too. Don't be scared. That's just my dog's speaking voice. Um, Beth, now back, back to business. Are you allowed to tell me about Parakeet? Yes. This is, you, you're hearing it here first. Okay. What's Parakeet? So, Parakeet is a program I am launching in January, 2024 with my esteemed uh, collaborator and friend of the pod, composer to the pod, Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. 
And Parakeet is an intense program for people who have a book stuck inside of them. And they know they want, nay, they need to get this book out. This will be a very intensive program that um, includes multiple small group workshops every month, dyad partnerships, and small writing groups. And we will be going through all of the different psychological and logistical and time management and external things that prevent a person from writing and then doing something with the writing. I have become very good professionally at getting books out of people. And um, I'm going to be running this program for about 20 to 24 people who know that they cannot die without having written this book and putting it out into the world. I won't say more about that yet because there's no way for people to sign up. But when it's time to sign up, we're going to let you know how. And that's in January? <laughs> yeah, we're going to roll out the applications in October. And the program okay. will begin January 2nd. And we'll be together for a year. So you will be writing your book and then we'll be doing things about like self-esteem and what is your brain telling you about being a writer, logistical, practical, tactical things about writing and building writing community and finding opportunities. How do you write about the book you're writing? How do you talk about it? How do you start to think about yourself as somebody who could get an agent and get a publisher? Where do you even look to, to figure out like, who do I want to be my agent? Who do I want to be my publisher? What if I don't think I deserve to write a book? What if I think nobody cares? All of the stuff that affects every writer, including first time writers people who want to get their first book out of them. It doesn't have to be your first book. It might be a book that's just really stuck inside of you. But I think a lot of people who have a first book that's sort of trapped, that's blocking traffic, might be attracted to this program. And it's called Parakeet. And I won't tell you what that means because you only find out when you finish the program. Oh, my God. Um, and can I use this moment to say I'm having a miniature version of this. I'm having a 12-week comics workshop for in September, October, November, where we are going to once a month have lecture and craft talks. Once a month, we're going to have workshop. Once a month, we're going to have office hours and working together time, like homework club, study hall. And then once a month, we're going to have just guided drawing and comics exercises. So um, it's up on my website now. I would like people to have already taken a graphic memoir one workshop. If you haven't, but you want to go, email me first before you sign up. How many spots do you have left right now? Right now, I have about 10 spots left. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, let's get to some questions. Beth, here's a question. Dear Capricorn Matters, I know that you say it's important to take breaks and attend to your own health and welfare. But how do I acknowledge creative seasons in my life and trust that the flow will come back if I take a pause to ground myself and take care of my human form? Signed, wondering in Wisconsin. Hmm. Okay. Up in Wisconsin, I would say maintaining some of your creative connection to yourself is a way that you take care of yourself. So um, I don't know the nature of this person's practice or the forms that they work in, but I think that a way you take care of yourself as an artist, all artists, is your creative work. So it doesn't have to be a project that you're working on. It might just be a practice that you're tending to. So I, I guess I, I don't see them as mutually exclusive. And definitely output has seasons, right? Like a person might finish a big project and then have a real kind of lull afterwards where they need to fill up internally and 
they're sort of in a daze and, and they're not ready to like jump into a new thing. But during that time, having a creative practice is really important. Maybe even a practice that's very different from the form they typically work in. So I don't see these things as a duality. I don't see them as mutually exclusive. I think that your practice and how many resources go into it internally and externally sort of expand and contract depending on just what's happening in your life. So if you're putting a big focus on specific ways that you take care of yourself and your body, or maybe you're sick or going through some big surgery or something, a creative practice that's adapted to that time is a way to also take care of yourself. It's sort of like shifting the purpose of why does it exist? It doesn't have to be for output. It doesn't have to be for an audience. It's just about you in this kind of spiritual connection to yourself. Mm -hmm. Are there ways you've seen people adapt their creative practice, especially when they are like physically down? Well, you know, I think, uh, let me think of some examples. I, I can think of artists who have recently given birth and they're sort of in the very beginning stages of like total sleeplessness, figuring out how to manage having an infant with whoever they're raising the infant with and feeling as part of their crazy sleeplessness, like a real far disconnect away from a creative practice or even their identity as an artist at all. This is not uncommon after somebody gives birth. And I think that what I do in that situation with that person is find sort of like small, very manageable ways to have some type of creative contact with the self through other work that you're just taking in or something that's very simple, like a very small daily writing practice or even recording thoughts. It, it's sort of just like more important than what you're doing or for how long. It's just that moment where you decide to turn that focus on yourself in this way for a moment. Sort of like a pause and acknowledging like, oh yeah, this is a part of me. I'm just going to acknowledge that for a moment. And I'm going to, I'm going to sort of manifest that for a few moments, for a few minutes, a couple of times a week. And that can, continuity can create enough of a through line to carry you through having an infant or going through surgery or a major illness. It's sort of like it, it, it will help take care of you as you're tending to somebody else's and or your own body and whatever's going on with it. Hmm. And how do you keep away from doom scrolling during those moments? Oh my because God, I, have, have somebody just yank the phone away from you and throw it in the freezer or something. Get off the internet. That's not going to help you. I, I just feel, came off of, okay, full disclosure. I just came off of slightly over a month of no Instagram. And Instagram is yeah. my only social media. So the only thing I was getting was like friends like yourself were sending me memes. God bless you all. Those were great memes in June. And I had a lot, I, I was feeling a lot better in specific ways being off of Instagram. And then I went back on today because I need it for work. And in fact, I had to start yet another account that I'm going to be overseeing for a while. And like half a day of grappling with Instagram, I feel chaotic, busier, and just immediately my finger going back to like, do people like that thing? Do people like that thing? You know, it, it's just like, it works on us immediately. So anything you can do, beg, cajole someone to yank that phone away from you. Just get it away. Yeah. Because I really find, so, you know, I worked at Rock Camp last week. And as you know, because you've done it, working at Rock Camp is a, a full body experience. Where full you contact sport. Full it's contact a full sport. contact sport. You're giving your entire heart, energy, body to the process of helping children form a band all day long. And you're in the hot sun here in LA and it's mostly outdoors here in LA. And so then when you get home at the end of the day, after a long day, you're just a melted person. You're like a candle stump. Um, and I found after camp, 
after like a however many hour, 50, 60 hour week, whatever it was, getting home, I just like my face was glued to my phone for half of a day because my brain was just like, because my brain was not peak performance. And I just couldn't think of something to watch besides and just like that. And um, I just, I just ended up like getting lost, getting lost in the corridors of my telephone for right. hours. That's normal. Cause what you're describing, I would classify as just like, it's just numbing behavior. Yeah. And when you're really tired, like after what it's like to volunteer at rock camp. Yeah. You're just going to be reaching for numbing activities because you, you just don't have anything available. And that's fine. I think what you do is when you notice, like when you become conscious of, oh, this doesn't feel good anymore, or this numbing isn't numbing me anymore. It's actually doing a different, worser thing. <laughs> that's when you just put it down. And that's, I'm saying it like it's very simple. And I know this is a, that's like a, a muscle that has to get strengthened and maintained all the time. The ability to notice like, oh, this doesn't feel good. And in fact, I think it's hurting me. So I'm going to put it down. Like if I could do that with a pack of cigarettes, I wouldn't have to stay away from cigarettes. You know what I mean? So definitely with phones and doom scrolling, it starts as a, a pleasant numbing activity after a long day when you can't even imagine watching TV because that seems like too much stimulus. But the social media feed is giving us so much stimulation. It's just giving too much. Mm. And is it possible to put it down? I don't know. Maybe not. But when you notice, when you first notice, I think this is hurting me. I would ask all of us to consider anytime we realize, I think this thing is hurting me to try putting it down. You can pick it right back up, but just try putting it down. I do end up deleting it. I really enjoyed your practice of deleting Instagram for the weekend. And so I'll have stretches at a time where I'm like, okay, I did my post to, you know, proof of life. I did my post. Now I'm deleting Instagram for like three days. And those three days feel excellent. And I'm like, oh my God, there's so much time in the day. I can't yeah. believe it. I know. Um, Beth, I know that this month, the homework club topic is asking. What can you tell me about asking and why is it so hard for us? Oh man. Actually the next two months, July and August, we're doing asking part one, asking part two. Okay. Because I was noticing in my clients the past few months, it was coming up with a lot of different clients of a lot of different backgrounds and disciplines and demographics people having such an unwillingness and reluctance and fear about asking people for things, whole range of things. Asking for anything is really hard for most of us for a lot of um, intersecting reasons. It's the very first chapter I wrote in my book was the chapter about asking because it is just so up for all my clients all the time. Asking anybody for anything, whether that's a formal ask, like an application, or asking someone to write you the letter of recommendation so you can submit the grant application, or asking somebody for an introduction or for a studio visit, or asking someone to donate to the thing, or asking someone to help you figure out some technical thing. Just asking for anything, is it's just really hard because we're human, and a lot of us have been socialized in multiple ways to, to believe that if we ask for something, for one thing, we should already know how to do it and we should be able to do it by ourselves. And we're bothering someone and imposing by asking for anything. And that that's rude. It's not okay. We're taking up too much space. People think we're climbing or using them. Just like crazy shit plays through our heads when we consider asking a human being for a thing, right? And um, I just noticed it was really up for a lot of my clients. And when something's going on with all my clients, I decide to bring it to homework club because that's like a group of 400 other artists. So I think there's probably some through lines. So my entire thesis about asking always boils down to this. 
Don't say no on behalf of the other person. Let the other entity say yes or no. Don't say no on their behalf. And the way we do that, the way we say no for someone else is by not asking. And you, you'll you recognize the tape because I have it too. We all have the same sort of internal thing that goes like, well, you know, I was going to ask so-and-so, but I know they're really busy right now. Or I think they just had COVID or, the, you know, they just had a baby or um, I, I don't want, I know everybody bothers them. We sort of talk ourselves out. We say no for someone before we've ever even asked. And I want all of us to let the other entity say yes or no, and then develop a relationship to being told no and being told yes, because they're difficult for different reasons. Mm. So in July and August, we're going to be doing part one and part two of why the fuck is it so hard to ask for things? And what do we actually do about that? Because the reality is for all artists, the more you ask for of everything, the more you get of literally everything. Yeah. You get you get more yeses and you get more noes. There's an uptick in both. And so developing a relationship to being told yes and being told no is really important. But the more you ask for in every category, the more you're going to get. So asking one person for one thing one time last November, not enough. Not enough. You got to ask for more. You got to ask for more. You have to really increase frequency and points of contact. <laughs> it's like um I just think of it looking at the probability of fundraising. If I ask one person for money, it's a 50-50 chance of whether they're going to give it to me or not. Um, I have much better odds if I ask a thousand people for money. There's a really good chance some of those people are going to give me money. And a lot of those people are not. But then there was an uptick in the yeses and the noes. And that's the same with all kinds of requests. The more you ask for, the more you are going to get. Mm. Are you allowed to tell me about the project for which you are currently asking for money? The new project for which you have created a new Instagram account. <gasps> yes. God, I have so many new things happening on this Capricorn full moon. <laughs> <laughs> I wish everyone could see the lightning bolts that just like flashed from the heavens behind me when I was saying that. God, there's so, okay. So the smartest thing I've done recently, I mean, I've done some very smart things in my personal life that I can't get into, but the smartest thing I've done professionally is our beloved friend and one of our favorite writers of all time, Michelle T said to me, will you help me start a queer press? And I said, yes, I will do anything you ever ask me to do because all I want to do is read your writing and read the writing that you select and put out into the world. Michelle T's whole life and her career has had the biggest impact. I would not be who I am and where I am without all of her writing. And then had I not then worked with her and for her for years. So when Michelle T asks me to do something, I say, yes. So she asked me, would I do a queer press with her? And I said, yes. So I'm the, I'm the, uh, who am I? I'm the 501c3 paper pushing guy on the back behind the scenes. That's who I am. And we have started a press called Dopamine Books. It is going to be a publishing collaborative with the beloved esteemed publisher, Semiotext, based here in Los Angeles. And the first eight books are already planned and underway. And the first book is going to come out May 7th, 2024. It's an anthology called Sluts. There will be four anthologies on themes that Michelle was concerned with and wanted artists and writers to explore in writing. And they will go in this order. Sluts, witches, clowns, and criminals. Those four anthologies will also have single author books tied to those themes. And so those first eight books, they're already in production. Incredible. How can people in Los Angeles support Dopamine Press? 
Well, the first thing I want you to do is smash that at Dopamine Books LA button. There's no button that says that. Go to Instagram and follow Dopamine Books LA. That's one of the things I'm like stressed out about right now is like getting that thing up and running. So you can get updates. We are having our very first fundraiser to raise money for artist commissioning fees Sunday, August 13th in Los Angeles, California, technically Glendale at beloved friend of the pod space, Junior High. And it's completely a labor of love for me. I do not get paid from this. It is all volunteer. It's all devotion to Michelle T and queer literature. Very cool. I have one more question for you or topic. The topic is volunteerism. We've talked about it on the podcast before. On the heels of just like, oh my God, just jump it into rock camp at 7.30 this morning for $0 and zero cents. I was reminded of the fact that I have been volunteering my whole life since I was a teenager. Um, And we tell people this is a way to make friends. It's a way to get in the community. I know that you do volunteerism in your life. What does it mean to you? I think you don't have to be rich to do it. You don't have to be like a rich, bored person who has like a wealthy spouse who's bankrolling your life. In fact, I've never been that person. (laughs) Liar. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the dog training business to pay off so Kaya can go train dogs. And then I just get to volunteer all the time. Amazing. Um, but what is it? Why do you do it? What does it mean in your life? Do you recommend other people do it? Yes. I mean, volunteering is one of the most meaningful things I've always done in my life. And you too, like this is the thing we've always had in common. We've always been really interested in being of service, especially in ways that, um, sort of enact our value system. Like some people volunteer, people volunteer for a lot of different reasons, but a reason I think you and I do is because the the values we have about what the world could be, we like to help make it so through volunteering and um, to sort of pursue the areas of interest we have that maybe aren't our jobs, but we still feel really committed to those things. And so volunteering, I mean, who is it for? You have to make time for it. It is like, it's an investment of time. It might not be, it may be specialized skills, but at the very least it's time. And uh, it, there's been times in my life where, I mean, most of my young life, I worked multiple jobs for very low wages and still I volunteered. Was that workaholism? I don't know. That's a different podcast for a different day, but volunteering is a different form of labor and it gives me something different back. And it actually helped me over the course of my life have a different relationship to paid work, to have better boundaries with it. Like this is what I do for money. And over here, this is what I do for other reasons, for other purposes. And my volunteerism has evolved and changed in lots of ways over the past 25 years. Um, But actually a thing I'm doing right now is really, really, really meaningful. And it's like a brand new way that I'm being of service. And that is that... um, I am in a Hebra Kadisha, which is a Jewish holy society of volunteers who take care of the dead when somebody dies. Um, they provide services called um, Shmira and Tahara. And Shmira is when volunteers sit with the body after someone has died so that it's never alone. Um, and then the Tahara is a group of volunteers who actually wash, ritually wash, and then dress and place in the casket, the body. We tend to the body and prepare it for burial. And it's a really... It's, it's an ancient practice in, in Jewish cultures, um, this di- particular death practice. And so when I found out that there was a community, Hever Kadisha in LA County, that would be of service to any Jewish person who died, anybody, they didn't have to be part of a temple, just anybody who wanted these services, 
this volunteer group would provide them. And it is like the most meaningful volunteer work I've done in a really long time because it um, sort of integrates a lot of different parts of my life that are really important. My Jewish life, my commitment to death acceptance, um, being of service to people around death, end of life, and grieving, um, teaching more people about all the choices they have about death and dying. Um, Yeah. So like this volunteering thing, it's like I'm being of service, but what I'm having is a profoundly transformative spiritual experience along the way. Mm -hmm. There's something, there's some anti-capitalist thing in there too, of working for free purposefully. And like yeah, tend, well, tending to your spiritual self through yes. being of service. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I, I tell my clients this all the time. Like a lot of artists, their sort of goal, they think if I could just make all of my money from my art, that's sort of like my goal professionally. And I always tell them, as you make money from your art or different parts of your practice, your relationship to it changes. Just like if you volunteer for an organization you love and then you get hired there, your relationship to it changes. When money is exchanged, it changes the nature of the labor. And that exchange of money is crucial. We have to have money to pay for all the things because you and I do not come from billionaires, despite what everyone thinks about us. All the gold teeth in my mouth would suggest we do not come from billionaires. Um, So we have to earn money. And yet there's many things I want to do in ways I want to connect and be of service that um, aren't part of my job, or maybe I don't want to make a job out of them because I want the meaning to be different. And once money is involved, the meaning changes. So it's like my paid jobs are for that. Their primary purpose is to pay for my life. Then my job is to have a life that it pays for. And that's Mm. a big life with many, many different things. And one of those things is being of service in ways that are meaningful to me. You know, Beth, I get this feeling often as somebody who carries a tiny computer around in my pocket of being enraged by reading the news or seeing things that have happened to people I care about or just interpersonally things happen and I'm like, oh, I want to post about it. Like, I just want to post and tear things down and shit post. And then I have to stop and think, is this a text or a tweet? Number one. Number two, I have to think, okay, what is my purpose in the world? And my purpose to me, it feels better to try and build something than to tear something down. And so I have to reorient myself towards building. And whether that is by donating, whether that is by volunteering, that is the thing that kind of darns the tears in my spirit more than me kind of amping up my anger and self-righteousness by posting and just preaching to the choir, having other people like, yeah, and then I'm like, yeah, um, I just wanted to bring that into the volunteerism conversation. Well, volunteering creates meaning. I think it's a deeply spiritual thing to do. And meaning-making, having powerful, transformative, spiritual relationships to people, animals, the earth, this helps kind of smooth down the really rough edges of going through the day sometimes, the things that make it really hard to be alive and be in the world. And when we're really mad, I, I, during the pandemic, I did a lot of training with LA's uh, White People for Black Lives. And they have such a beautiful organizing model that is about like long-term sustained change inside the organization and what they're trying to do out in the world. And it is such a good place for people to land who are enraged and, and want to react and do something. 
they do such a good job of sort of bringing people into the fold, giving them a political education and tools for here's how we create change and is a long sustained thing, but you don't have to do it alone. And here's a big community where you can bring all of this rage and overwhelm and feelings of insanity with what the world is like. You can bring it here. Like we understand. And we're a united group of people who are very different, but we are here to have sustained change. And we have a political framework that's based on the study of how do politics make change? Like how does a group of people have a goal and then enact the goal? So I think being involved, volunteering also helps you see like you're not alone. The outrage you feel and the reactivity that wants to come from that, there's there's places to bring it and people to bring it to um, that help give perspective and understand like we're part of a long arc of history and the moment, any moment is just a moment, just one thing. And if it's on the internet, it's okay to put down the internet and walk away and go outside into the world that has other dimensions to it. As just a, a loving thing to do for yourself because you have this what? This what? Wait for it. One precious life. What do you want to do with it? <laughs> Beth Pickens, thank you for sharing your one wild and precious life with us. <laughs> we really appreciate it. And I know everyone's going to be curious about Homework Club, about Parakeet, and about Dopamine Press. And please come back to the show and talk to us about your death practice and about how it's going. Oh, you know, it's my favorite thing to talk about. Please remind us that we're all going to die someday and that that's actually real. I'm going to die and you're going to die. So how do we want to live? Who do we want to be? And who do you want to move through the world with? My tortoise. Your tortoise. My tortoise. Thank you, Beth. Yeah, love you, Nicole. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance from Ponyo Georges. This week, our episode was guest edited and produced by Carolyn Penny Packer-Riggs, who also wrote our theme song. Thank you, Carolyn. You can find her at carolynpennypackerriggs.com. Capricorn Matters.